0: Before introducing today's guest, I have sad news to report. D.G. Myers, who I interviewed last summer, has passed away. His interview was part of the reason I scheduled today's guest, Becky Lydicote Yumeric, a palliative care physician who had some interesting observations in the aftermath of the Myers interview that she shared with me via email. Myers passed away after the interview with Becky was recorded, so you won't hear it mentioned in today's episode. I will link to D.G. Myers' blog that includes an announcement of his death with charities you can choose to donate to in his memory. Now for today's episode. Today is September 22, 2014, and before introducing today's guest, I want to mention we've been creating some additional resources for your education and what we hope is your enjoyment online. Amy Willis of Liberty Fund has been posting at econtalk.org what we call extras, ways for you to check your knowledge and find connections between episodes. And I've been adding afterthoughts on episodes now and then at EconTalk and sometimes at EconLog or sister site where we have uh, folks blogging. To keep up with these learning opportunities, follow me on Twitter, which is at e- Econ Talker, EconTalker, E C O N T A L K E R, which is my Twitter name. And please visit econtalk.org and EconLog if you're interested. And now for today's guest, Becky Lidicote Yamarik. She is a hospice palliative care physician. Becky, welcome to EconTalk.
1: Thanks very much. My husband and I are huge fans of the podcast, and I'm very happy to be here.
0: I am too. Now, this episode grew out of the previous episode we did with DJ Myers, uh, who talked about living with cancer and how to cope with it, and the fact that he's dying of cancer, and that he's very realistic about that experience, and we're going to talk about that episode eventually, but our main topic is grown out of that, which is the economics of the end of life. The personal and political choices that face patients and doctors and to me these are uh, essentially economic questions not because they involve money although they sometimes do or incentives which they sometimes do but because they involve choices how to get the most out of life which i view as the essential economic question so i want to begin becky by talking about your job generally which is a, a job i'd never heard of until recently and I suspect it's fairly new, which is a palliative care physician. What is palliative care?
1: Well, palliative care is a a subspecialty um, that uh, grew out of um, the need for improved communication and symptom management of patients at the end of life. So people who are palliative care specialists typically have done a year of training Um, after their residency training mine was in internal medicine Um, and then I did a year of training in palliative care and the focus is on um, the treatment of symptoms um, of serious or terminal illnesses Um, so we focus a lot on learning about how to treat pain, nausea, shortness of breath, depression, lots of uh, symptoms of patients who have things like cancer, emphysema, heart failure, with Gehrig's disease. Um, and then the other thing we focus on is helping patients decide on their goals of care, um, on what treatments make sense, on what their prognosis is, um, and trying to help patients and families live as well as they can
0: for as long as they can. But it's presumed, of course, we're all terminal. We're all going to die. But these are people who, whose death is somewhat imminent or a disease is taking a course that is irreversible. Is that the case?
1: It usually is. So, um, you know, one of the um, things that happens in, in palliative care when it's practiced in the hospital is we tend to see patients very late um, in the course of their disease when they're close to death, and we feel it's, we're better off if we see patients earlier. Um, but, you know, we can see patients who don't, who are not terminally ill. And so a lot of times in my clinic work, I've treated patients that have very chronic serious back pain, other chronic pain issues, um, you know, other symptoms, but it typically is patients who are closer to death. In my residency training um, in palliative care, every patient who is admitted to the hospital, uh, The admitting doctor had to answer the following question, would you be surprised if this patient died in a year? And if the answer was no, I would not be surprised, then they got an automatic palliative care consult. So that's somewhat unusual. That was in a pretty uh, progressive training program. Um, So we were seeing patients fairly upstream, but uh, unfortunately, most of the time we tend to see patients uh, very late. And in the course,
0: talk about talk about hospice because in my mind, a uh, hospice is a a little cottage with four or five beds where people are uh, getting ready to die and are and they're being comforted as they're as they're about to go. That's um, that's probably from watching the wrong kind of movie, maybe the right kind. What is hospice care, and what is a hospice? In what forms do they take in the modern world? Okay, so
1: hospice is. Um, a kind of care. It is not a place. Um, the definition uh, from Medicare is uh, in order to be eligible for hospice care, a patient needs to have a prognosis of six months or less. Now, that doesn't mean that a patient has to die within six months. I and mean, there are patients that live longer than they that. They don't enforce oh, it. Oh, <laughs> they do and they don't. I mean, they, they audit you and they see that patients... Uh, clearly don't meet the criteria and there is criteria for each disease, then you will have to give Medicare money back. Yeah, that's, not, um,
0: that's not what I meant, but that's okay. I, I interrupted you. I apologize. I was making a no, very no, but, bad joke, uh, a, a little bit of dark humor. Um, oh,
1: I, I see. They don't, uh, <laughs> yes, they don't come in and say, okay, your six months is up. Get, you, time uh, you to must go. Die now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, time to go. No, they do not enforce it. Um, but um, so, Hospice is a, in order to accept hospice, you have to accept that you have a terminal illness and you uh, need to accept that the focus is on the treatment of symptoms um, and not on the cure of the disease. Um, and hospice can happen in a home. It can happen in a nursing home. Um, there are some, you know, independent sort of hospice units, but those have somewhat fallen by the wayside, um, I think mostly because of cost and reimbursement issues. So most hospices, if a patient can't be at home, they tend to be in a nursing home setting. And in hospice, you, the minimum you get is you get a nursing visit once a week if nothing's really going on and you're fairly, symptom-wise, fairly stable. Uh, but if a lot is going on, a nurse can visit more often. You can have a home health aide that can come typically a couple days a week but can be more often to help you with bathing uh, social worker and chaplain is required. Also, volunteer is required. Um, through the benefit, you can accept a volunteer. And in our hospice that I work for, um, you know, we have volunteers that will come for three, four hours once a week to help um, keep you company or take you shopping or do shopping for the caregiver. Um, it's not a 24 hour care service. And a lot of um, patients and families don't always understand that. The family or a hired caregiver needs to be the person there. Um, And for us, uh, my hospice, the the vast majority of patients are cared for at home. Uh, There are some patients, maybe 20, 30% that are in nursing homes. And if you have a situation where a patient gets really out of control pain or shortness of breath, there are mechanisms to increase the level of care for us to send a nurse out for 24 hours for a short period of time to try to get that symptom under control, and that's something called crisis care.
0: How long has this specialty existed? Do you know?
1: Um, Well, I finished residency in 2003, and um, I did a little stint doing research, uh, which didn't go that well, and I heard about palliative care in 2005, and I think... uh, in my fellowship, which was at the West LA VA, it was the second year that they had had fellows. So that's about 10 years old, I think, about.
0: And what happened, what happened before?
1: It's a good question. I mean, I've often wondered why is it that palliative care came about now? Um, is it something that was really needed? I think a lot of people have a... Um, this romantic view of the past that somehow before doctors were really great communicators and we've sort of lost that ability. And so we need palliative care to kind of bring that back. Um, I think that before um, there weren't as many choices. I think one of the problems is in modern medicine, there's a lot of very complicated choices to be made because we have choices and choices are a good thing, right? Um, I, I do want to give an example, you know, since you asked me about that, um, of something I, you know, a way that I think about how things used to be um, is, and something that still exists now is um, the way that patients are treated with, with Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS. Um, and that is a fairly uncommon disease that, where you become very weak uh, and it's progressive and you lose the ability to walk, you lose the ability to talk, eventually you lose the ability to swallow and to breathe. And these patients, of all the patients I've treated as a group, I mean, there's individual variation, but as a group, they tend to be the most prepared for the decisions at the end of life. Um, and I've often wondered why that is. I mean, the you know, why is it that they're better prepared? And to me, I think the answer is that there's a certainty to this disease. We, there's very, there's like one drug that can sort of slow it down for a while, but that eventually everyone will have to make the decision. Do you want a feeding tube? And when you can't breathe anymore, do you want a tracheostomy or what, a you know, hole in your neck and be hooked up to a ventilator and breathe that way so that you can live longer. And when, when I've gotten involved with patients with ALS, which is typically when they're hospitalized for pneumonia, Sometimes earlier on when they're having issues with pain and other symptoms, they've all talked about the the treatment. And I think it's because there's not a whole lot that the doctors have to offer and there's no room for magical thinking that the treatment's going to work for them because it's inevitable. You know, they all will die and they all will die in mostly the same way. Um, so I think it's kind of ALS is sort of like a window into the way things used to be and people. People used to talk more because they didn't have a whole lot else to offer. There weren't treatments that really could cure you.
0: So you're saying that in the old days, whatever that means, but in the old days, uh, people felt an inevitability about the the process once they got to a certain point. And now, because of the innovations in healthcare of all kinds, there's there's more to to choose. Is that is that some summary correct?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I- you know, my uh, my father graduated from medical school. We both went to Northwestern, and he graduated in 1953. And he tells this story about when he was a senior medical student staying up all night with a patient dying of liver failure and how, you know, he talked with him for many hours. He was homeless, and about 24 hours before he died, he pulled out a um, sort of crumpled piece of paper out of his pocket and it was, um, a license to practice medicine in the state of Illinois. And he was dying of liver failure because he was a homeless alcoholic. Um, and my dad talks about, you know, what that was like and talking to him. And I think about, I mean, I graduated medical school in 2000 and you didn't, in 2000, you didn't sit up all night talking to uh, a dying patient. You You were homeless and had no family. You were busy moving them into the intensive care unit, um, and putting them on life support. Probably and running down all their tests and cat scans so
0: you have a very like so you have a very i mean every medical specialty is, is has some unique aspect to it. one of the things that always fascinates me about the modern world is is how specialized it is and one of the things I often uh, think of as an example of that is medical care that a hundred years ago you were a doctor period, and now you 're not just a doctor you 're not just a cardiologist, your pediatric cardiologist, or your specialization is so unbelievable. So you know, your specialty is um, this interesting, it seems, interesting mix of talking, listening, helping people decide, providing options, administering options, probably consulting, I assume, with family uh, and the patient in some situations and the doctors, the primary care doctors. It, it must be a, it's, it's a somewhat complex job. But my first thought, hearing about it, is that it's a depressing job because uh, pretty much you don't save anybody; they're all they're all going to die. So, is it a depressing job?
1: Um, no, it's actually it's not depressing at all. A lot of people ask me that, and um, you know, I'll say when I give talks to med students and residents, you know, I, I haven't helped anyone really. Uh, live a lot longer in 10 years, but it doesn't mean that um, my job is sad and depressing. Um, I have a lot, because of my training, um, I have a lot of skills in communication. And I think that one of the really depressing things for a lot of physicians when they're trying to talk to patients about the end of life is um, it doesn't go well. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, an oncologist will say uh, something like, well, you know, your cancer is really getting worse. You can't breathe now and your lungs are full of fluid and you, know, you, you can't even get up to go to the bathroom. And so I think we really need to start focusing on keeping you comfortable. And um, some patients and families will become very angry and they'll say, well, what do you mean? Like, isn't there more that you can do? And then the oncologist will say, well, no, there's nothing more I can do. Um, and we can talk about why that's, you know, not a very good approach, but, um, when, you know, I have a lot of training in, uh, you know, communication and and psychology and how, um, how to kind of help patients and families accept limited prognosis, understand what their choices are in a way that doesn't focus on, um, abandonment and, um, doesn't focus on, um, I'm sorry, what despair, Yeah. Despair. Um, You know, I'll talk a lot about like, well, there's a lot that we can hope for. We can hope that, you know, you can make it till your son's graduation next month. We can try to help your breathing get better. Um, We can help your pain get better. Um, And, you know, but we have to prepare in case things change in the future. And, you know, I also work as a hospitalist. I mean, I am an internal medicine doctor, but I, you know, up until recently took care of regular hospitalized patients. And a lot of times you're doing things that are uncomfortable. You know, you're putting in big central lines in people's necks. You're sending them for MRIs where they have to sit in a tube for an hour. You're, you know, putting needles in their back to take spinal fluid out, you know, and it's, it's painful. And, um, with my job, I get to, I I just get to help people feel better. So, and you get to learn about you know, people. You get to learn about their life. I mean, I was a history major in college, so I find people very interesting. That's why I like your podcast a lot. You learn a lot about different, you know, people's history, their past, what, you know, their family life, um, you know, how they haven't talked to their daughter in 20 years, but, you know, we're going to help them get back in touch with her before she dies. I mean, that's can be very, uh, very uplifting.
0: That's, that's, um, that must be extraordinary. There must be, be some days that are um, very moving and uplifting like that, but there must be some tougher ones too.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think when um, it's really hard when people don't, um, you know, when they're when they're in denial, and you know, denial can be a protective thing. I'll tell the residents that you know you don't want to just sort of break down someone's denial, but you want to kind of help them move along and. You know, sometimes you'll just see patients who you know are going to die and they're not accepting it. And so you see them um, suffer a lot, you know, get a lot of uh, life support treatment and things that are not going to help them and make choices that that you don't agree with. But, you know, it's a free country. We don't live in a totalitarian state. So, you know, you have to accept that. that. Even with the best communication, some patients will make choices that uh, you don't you don't think
0: are are good um well let me ask so let, me, let me ask you about the psychological side though the um one of the things i really liked about dg myers because it reflects uh some of the understanding i have of of the way some people at least feel about disease is he he talked about how much he hates the phrase uh battling cancer um and this this idea that there's something heroic about it um but there is a belief and I think it has some basis in in science, maybe it doesn't, there is a belief that that optimism is healthy. Optimism, that not giving up, denial, what you're talking about right now is, it's good because it helps the patient, I don't know, marshal some enzymes and I don't know what else, but it, that it's healthy. Do you think that's true or not true?
1: Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think that, for some patients, um, denial can be protective, um, and if they're not ready to accept um, a limited lifespan, that denial can protect them.
0: But um, is it productive? Does it does it help them fight the disease?
1: I think that's really hard to measure. Yeah, I me mean, too.
0: <laughs>
1: so I I don't know. I
0: I sort of have some of the concerns you do you voiced before. So this raises a question uh, I've often wondered about, which is how much control people have over when they die. My favorite example: this i probably mentioned this before on Econ Talk, but um, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson uh, both died on the same day, uh, July fourth, eighteen twenty-six. The fiftieth anniversary of the um, Declaration of Independence, and of course, it could just be a coincidence, but I, I felt that psychologically they had a desire to make it to that day, and they may have, quote, given up in some dimension before that and died sooner if it weren't for that arbitrary 50-year anniversary. Do you see that phenomenon, people hanging on till some event and then seemingly giving up and going?
1: Yes, yes. Um, I think, as I said, you, you see it when there's some event that or somebody wants to live for, um, in Southern California, where I work, we have a lot of immigrant patients. So oftentimes we are trying to get, um, you know, people across the border from Mexico and patients will wait, um, to try to see their relative. Patients will, we will help patients get to the, uh, South America and a lot of patients will make it till they die there. Um, so seeing someone or making peace with a family member, um, can be really important for people. And so people will, you know, suffer through a lot. Um, you know, I, I read uh, somewhere a family member of a dying patient said that, you know, death is not painful. It's the resistance to death that is painful. And so, you know, patients will um, resist it if there's something important for them or if they can't accept accept their death. Um, I do though, so think, you know, one of the things that um, I, I feel a lot is that, you know, death there's a, you know, people will joke and they'll say, well, you know, in America, you all think that death is optional. Um, and, uh, you know, Europeans will say that about, you know, our escalating costs at the end of life and how much, how many people go to the intensive care unit. But I do think there's some aspect of death. The time of death is a choice now. Because when you have a terminal illness, like say you have advanced cancer, um, even if you come into an emergency room, and you are actively dying and everybody looks at you and says, this patient's dying. Um, typically, what will happen is uh, the, the, the family member who's with them or the patient will be asked, well, you know, if your heart stops beating or you stop breathing, uh, what do you want us to do? And we can talk about why that's a terrible thing to ask, but why it happens. But they, they get asked that and then typically the patient will say, well, I want you to do everything, And so even though everyone recognizes they're dying, the patient will get put on a ventilator to help them breathe and given medications to keep their blood pressure up, and they'll be whisked off to the ICU. And then the decision will have to be made later um, to withdraw the life support and allow what we call allow natural death. So that is a a really common scenario. So in, in order to actually die, like people have to make this almost conscious choice because Medical care is this runaway train that will just um, keep you going and flog you over and over until uh, you know either you decide enough or um, you know you just die beside you know
0: even in the, best yeah effort. even in the face of that. So um, you talked about what was rewarding about your job. Are there things that that you find um, harder than others? Um, you know, for me, it seems unimaginably difficult and. The communication part you know you mentioned how doctors have trouble communicating bad news most people do and certainly doctors are not selected for the op- ability to deliver bad news in a way that's helpful or comforting um and that you've been trained in trying to do that it must be still incredibly hard are there some days that are really tough that you come home and you think this is this is too hard yeah
1: i i think you know up until recently i worked as a hospitalist and um doing uh, palliative care in the hospital at one of the University of California hospitals. And, um, and that was very challenging. You know, one of the things, too, is, is kind of trying to interact with the other doctors, um, you know, in a way that uh, is productive for the patients and the families. And a lot of times, you know, say if you have, um, you know, an example is uh, what case I worked on where a patient had really advanced um, disease, um, in his aorta. And so his aorta is the big, uh, blood vessel in the, in the belly burst. And he was a man in his mid eighties and, you know, that's about a 50 or 60% uh, mortality rate. If you, but the, if you have that happen to you, but you can do an emergency surgery. And so he had the surgery and he had it repaired uh, by a very good vascular surgeon at our hospital. Um, and I actually saw the patient before he went to the operating room, um, and I was actually working as a regular doctor. Uh, I was a hospitalist and doing medical consulting, which is to try to help optimize the patient for the surgery. And I, I uh, because I'm a palliative care specialist also, I asked the patient, I said, you know, things don't go well, um, and uh, you don't recover well. What is a quality of life that you need to have in order to want to live longer? And he said, you know, I don't want to live in a nursing home permanently. I don't want to live hooked up with machines. And so he had the surgery and he didn't do well. I mean, he'd had um, long-term rheumatoid arthritis. He'd been on steroids for a long time. He had kidney failure. All of that got worse. He was on dialysis. He was unable to come off the ventilator. And he, um, you know, you cannot stay on the ventilator for more than typically about a couple of weeks before a decision has to be made. Either you are removed from the ventilator and allowed to die or you're what we call traked where you have a hole put in your neck and you're hooked up to the ventilator that way and you have a tube for feeding. Um, and I met with a surgeon and the family many times and it was really hard because I knew what he had said and I also knew that was it impossible that he wouldn't recover from this? Well, no, it wasn't impossible, but... You know, people that get trached and tagged and sent to a facility, the typical survival, uh, you know, mortality in a year is somewhere between 50 and 60%. And someone who's 82 um, and who had just had a ruptured uh, abdominal aortic aneurysm was a lot lower than that. And so it was really hard because the surgeon is a really great guy, really caring doctor. But he said to me, I said, you know, we got, I mean, you really want to treat this guy? I mean, you really think that that's the right thing to do? And he said, well, I, you know, I'm just not ready to give up yet. I really think there's a chance that this guy can pull through. And, you know, when I'm working with patients and families, I, you know, I try to say, well, you have to, you know, it's their decision. Um, it's not your decision. Um, you know, and, and it's hard. So like these, you know, and I don't want to follow him. I think he, you know, he's very caring um, but the patient did end up getting traked and pegged and transferred to a, what we call an LTAC, a long-term acute care hospital. Um, and we can talk about the growth of those and what that means for medical care later. But um, it was—I uh, mean, those kind of things. When you feel like patients get treatments that they wouldn't have wanted, and uh, you know, that's
0: hard. Um, but surely you must have the opposite situation, too, where, where a patient says, I don't want X, Y, or Z. You give them X, somebody forces them to take X, Y, or Z, and um, then they're they're glad. Do you ever have that? I mean, is it It strikes me that knowing what we want at the end of our lives, uh, when we're say, you know, people would say, well, you should make that decision when you're in good health. and But, of course, it's not obvious that, that you're fully informed. The, the, it's a... It's not something we get to experience lots of times to get practice with. Um, so it's, it seems like an inherently difficult problem.
1: Well, yeah, I agree. And um, it's very difficult and it's hard to know. I mean, you may say right now as your healthy uh, man, you know, fairly young, you may say, you know, I wouldn't want to live if I ever had to go live in a nursing home. That just would not be acceptable to me. But later on in life, um, You know, maybe that choice comes up and maybe at that point you're like, Well, this is better than being dead, so this isn't so bad. So to say things like, you know, I would never want to live, you know, if XYZ I mean that we call that advanced care planning and I think it's helpful, but um I don't think it's a you know, a perfect solution. You know, I'll give the example of my own father, he's eighty four. And he's an ophthalmologist, very, uh, you know, bright, active guy. And two and a half years ago, he crashed into a tree, broke five vertebrae in his neck, almost died. And, um, he had told me before that he was kind of extreme. He said, I never want to live if I'm in, in any way mentally impaired. He'd watched his brother die of Alzheimer's and he's like, I don't want to be in any way mentally impaired. If I'm at all mentally impaired, don't do anything to keep me alive. Um, And I'm like, okay, that's a little extreme, but okay. Um, Well, now he has some mild brain injury. I mean, he gets confused. He probably couldn't live alone. I mean, he does uh, get along very well and he can still read. I mean, he can't practice medicine, but he's very happy (laughs) <laughs> you know, he's yeah. a happy guy in some he's ways. Sure- he's happier now than before, yeah. but it's kind of an example of the limitations of, of advanced care planning. I mean, I think the, the thing, the main thing that you can do is to choose someone to speak for you. Um, that's what we really stress is the most important thing. So the person that you pick should be the person who knows you the best. And that's why legally, if there's no one directed, it's always your spouse followed by your adult children. Um, But that's probably, and then to have kind of conversations with that person about, you know, mostly to give them permission to say, well, you know, if it looks hopeless to you or if, you know, I get to the point where I can't, um, you know, communicate in a meaningful way or I can't toilet myself, I can't get up out of bed, um, you know, then to me, that's not really quality of life.
0: Um, so, so we, you and I talked before we recorded this about an interesting phenomenon that this brings up, which is, it seems that the best person who could speak for you would be your spouse or your, or your children, um, but of course they're complicated sometimes, and their relationship with the patient's complicated, and sometimes they're eager to try treatments for themselves on behalf of the patient rather than what the patient want, because they have their own motives, their own desires, their own, they want the patient to live longer so that they can reconcile with them or whatever it is. So that must be incredibly difficult.
1: Yeah, yeah. Those are really challenging situations. And a lot of times um, families who are more cohesive for whom the relationship is better, oftentimes have an easier time letting go. And sometimes it can be families who there's a lot of um, anger uh, and unresolved issues. Um, You know, a lot of times we'll have families where there's multiple children and some of, and they have differing opinions. Uh, Some haven't seen the patient in 20 years. And they're often the ones that want to keep the patient alive because they feel guilty or, um, you know, there's other issues. I mean, sometimes you see, of interesting economic things come up, or say someone is getting um, you know money from Medicaid for in-home support services, and uh, you know you think to yourself, well, is this a, a conflict of interest? Do they want to keep them alive, you know, because quote unquote they get the
0: check. Yeah, um, an awful thought. Think, an awful thought, but probably sometimes relevant.
1: <laughs> yeah, it can be, and it can be very tricky how you bring that up. I mean, I think more frequently I see people make decisions that are economically very bad for them um, in order because they really want to continue to keep a patient alive, like they forego work or, you know, the money they're they're getting for in-home support is much less than they could make otherwise. So I, you know, I do see that happen a lot more rarely, but I, I see docs, you know, people a lot of times say, well, you, you know, you have to put all these other things aside and, and just think about what the patient would decide if they... Um, if they could speak for themselves and that that's your job. So what we call, I mean, that's a very kind of American individualist way of ethical, you know, surrogate decision-making you're the spokesperson for the patient and what would the patient say? Um, And that, you know, that can be useful, but then we, in California, we have a lot of cultures for whom, you know, the individual and their, you know, self-determination is not as important uh, so sometimes, you know, I'll have, say, a, you know, an Asian family who feels like, no, the most important decision maker is the family. And it doesn't really matter what the patient wants because it's the, the family um, that comes first, not the patient. So uh, it's, you do actually have, have to learn a lot about kind of other cultures and how they make decisions. And, you know, it can be very humbling
0: um, oh,
1: yeah, and okay. very interesting.
0: The other thought I had, which we're going to talk about in a minute, is that, of course, uh, it's very hard to be that Smithian impartial spectator uh, because you, of course, as the doctor or as the family member, have various incentives that that are impinging on you related to that decision. And it's easy to convince yourself that you're doing what's right for the patient when it's actually better for you. Um, so that's always, I think, the incredible challenge of these situations. Having said that, I'd rather have it be a family member than a, probably a stranger uh, appointed by the hospital or the government to make those decisions. So um, it's a, there's no easy way out of these. These are, these are inherently tough. I, wa- I want to turn to something that came up in the D.G. Myers episode that, that you wrote me about, which is you really like the fact that he wanted honesty. When mm-hmm. he had a certain amount of time left to live – say it was three years or five years or two years, whatever it was. And of course, there's no certainty about these things, but he appreciated when his doctors uh, told told him the truth and he really resented it when they sugarcoated it or pretended things were going to turn out otherwise. Why is that so important and why did that resonate with you?
1: Um, I think, you know, it really resonated with me because I feel like In my work and in, uh, you know, my friends and colleagues who work in, say, cancer or pulmonary and cardiology where you're dealing, or geriatrics where you're dealing with, uh, you know, very sick patients who are terminal, um, it can be rare. I mean, when someone comes in and they said, you know, I want to know my prognosis, I want you to tell me how long I have, um, you sort of breathe a sigh of relief because you're hoping that they will ask you. Um, And many times, you know, I've. Why is that important to you and to them? Because they're giving you permission to talk about that the end of their life is coming and then it opens up the door to make choices about treatments that either can help enhance the quality of life that you find acceptable or, um, you know, just to kind of talk about preparing. I mean, we talk in palliative care a lot about this idea that, that we should try to help patients have, you know, what we call a good death. And uh, one, time, one time I heard a uh, someone give a lecture, and they said that Yogi Berra once said that the only good death is someone else's. Mm. Um, so, I mean, you know, nobody wants to die, but, you know, a good death is one in which you've prepared, um, you have your affairs in order. I mean, I can't tell you how many times a, a patient will come into the hospital, and I was working as a hospitalist, and, and we'd admit the patient, they'd had cancer for a year, metastatic, you know, terminal cancer for a year. And they come in with a pneumonia and that's going to be their, the end of their life. And the spouse is sitting there crying, saying, I don't even know anything about the bank accounts or where any of the money is. And you just think to yourself, are you kidding? Like, yeah. you, you know, they're so, un- yeah, they're so unprepared. Um, and then they wind up in the ICU and then for, you know, no reason, um, on life support. And then the family has to make a decision to stop it. I mean, it's, it can be very, very hard. And a lot of times, you know, I'll see patients. I mean, so here's a patient from last week. Patient came onto hospice, metastatic pancreatic cancer, uh, 61 years old, diagnosed in April. It had a rapid decline. None of the chemotherapies had worked and, she stopped chemotherapy a month ago but she didn't come on to hospice until three days before she died Which so she went a month kind of with a lot of pain, a lot of symptoms her oncologist was trying to manage it and I talked to the oncologist and he said, you know, I, I talked to them about hospice and I thought it might be a good idea but they said that they weren't ready um, and that's kind of much more typical of the type of, of the, the interaction that that I'm seeing um, compared to patients like D.G. Myers. And it it could also be that I'm, you know, I get involved in the cases that are very difficult. And, you know, we do get a lot of patients that get on very early, um, you know, who forego treatment. Um, But it just seems like it's, and and I hear from oncologists, you know, it's very hard for them uh, to refer us patients to hospice earlier because the patients don't want to hear it. They're not ready. So,
0: oh, so let's talk about the um the incentives for that to happen to not be ready because that's one of the things you and I talked about before this recording, and I think it's uh very, very interesting. So what are the incentives facing an oncologist to um encourage realism and versus false hope? And of course, you know, there's 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 a gray area here because it's not cancer and disease generally is not predictable. There's some statistical regularities, you know. When you say there's a fifty to sixty percent chance, um, you know, some people say, "Oh my gosh, sixty percent chance that I'm not going to make, that I'm going to make it." That's phenomenal. Others say, "I have a forty percent chance of dying. I'm really, it's over." So, and of course, we don't really know what the chances are for each any one person. We're talking about statistical averages for a population to the extent we know them. So you you've um suggested to me that oncologists have a, a natural incentive to encourage treatment. I in my the book I've written about Adam Smith that's coming out soon, I talk about how you know if you're if you're if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If you're a surgeon, everything seems that's gonna be helped by surgery. So it's hard for us to think about doctors that way, but it, it can be true. So talk about what you've observed in that area. Well,
1: um, You know, oncologists have uh, a very, very hard job. There's a huge um, expectation uh, that patients will do well. And so, um, and they're more so in that specialty than any other patients will doctor shop. So um, a friend of mine who's a fellow in oncology at Stanford told me, uh, you have to have a thick skin to be an oncologist because your patient is always, you have to assume they're always going to go get a second opinion from someone else. So um, if a, patient comes in um you know who has advanced metastatic cancer um and i have another friend who's an oncologist on the east coast and her mother spent three years dying of uh ovarian cancer when she was a fellow and so she really feels like you know she's seen it up close she feels like it's important for patients to understand that they have a limited time um But she said she started doing that when she started practicing and being, you know, honest and open and realistic. And then she's like, my patients all left. They all went down to the academic center, um, you know, in downtown uh, in the city where she was at. And, um, you know, they were all much more hopeful and they had lots of studies and, you know, they just wouldn't be negative. So I think, you know, patients when they get diagnosed with cancer are terrified. Um, They're often at that point not ready to hear bad news. And, you know, the oncologist, uh, you know, if, unless you have a lot of training, and I asked my friend, I said, well, why do you think it's so hard to, um, you know, to refer patients to hospice or to stop chemo? And she's like, I was never taught. She's like, I, ne- I was never taught how to have those conversations in fellowship. I was taught how to give chemo, but I was never taught about psychology. You know, palliative care wasn't, you know, part of our training. And I think that's true. You know, when I was working at the University of California Hospital, um, I had to sort of beg the oncology service to let me give lectures and let the fellows spend time with us. I think that's changing now, which I think is good. I think people are getting more training, but, but I think historically, you know, they're not trained in it. So a lot of times, um, an oncologist will make kind of what we think of as a mistake. So say, you know, a patient has, um, an advanced disease, advanced disease, chemo is not going to be helpful. And they really think the patient will should stop. Um, they'll make the error of, they'll link the suffering of that the patient's going through with an insistence that they should accept death. So they'll say something like, well, you know, your cancer's getting worse and you can't breathe and your lungs are, you know, filling up, you're too weak, so we should just make you comfortable. Um, and then the reason the patient reacts badly to that is that, uh, they feel abandoned and there's different ways to bring that up in a, in a more productive way. But the oncologists don't have that experience, but the how to do that properly. Um, and so then what happens is they have that happen. They have the patient get angry, maybe leave them. And then they think like, well, no, I, you know, what, what's the point? I mean, I have 22 patients to see today in my office. And if I try to open this can of worms, Everybody just gets mad, and then I start running behind, and there's no incentive for me to do that. Why should I do that?
0: But it's a little worse than that, right? Because they, the oncologists make money from giving chemo. Is that correct?
1: So they – you know, that's an interesting question. They did. So up until I think about 2006, 2007, the oncologists would buy the chemotherapy drugs, and then they would get reimbursed by Medicare. But they would buy it for much less than the cost of the drug, so they were making money on on the chemotherapy, um, and you know one of the things that Medicare does keep trying to do is plug these holes where there's uh, perverse incentives. So they did change that. Um, so I think it's still, you know, I, I don't know how much that still happens. I think I think it probably does to some extent. Probably not as much. But one of the big things in general in medical care is that we are a volume-based system. We get reimbursed on volume. So if you see two patients in half an hour and, you know, you're going to make more money than if you spend an extensive time with one patient over half an hour. So the kind of conversation where you're trying to convince someone to go on to hospice and stop chemo is a much longer, more involved conversation then saying, like what happened with my pancreatic cancer patient, um, when she was getting weak and sick, the oncologist said, well, why don't we try to stop chemo for a while and see if you feel better? And then we can see what happens. So that's kind of typically, And so then you push the conversation, the reality off to another time. So I think time, um, I think, you know, chemo may be a part of it, but you see it even in docs who are, you know, salaried, you know, at either Kaisers or academic centers who don't make money on chemo. So I, I do think it's part of it. I don't think you can, you know, I think there's many different pieces. So I think that is an aspect of it, but also it's a, it's a time. I mean, doctors complain mostly to me that they don't have the time or the skills to have these conversations. Um, and they're not incentivized to do so. So another thing that's interesting is and it's come up a lot in palliative care, this idea, should we have, uh, should there be a detriment? Um, If you give chemo to a patient within two weeks of death, Hmm. should that be something that counts against you in some way? Um, Right now it doesn't. And to oncologist credit, it only happens somewhere between five and 8% of the time. Um, But if it, but it happens in surgery. So in surgery, your 30 day mortality is tracked carefully and, and published, I believe. So, um, oncologists, I mean, so surgeons, um, are, you know, will talk openly and say, well, I'm not going to do surgery on you because you, um, have a very high chance of dying. And I think it's too risky.
0: Um, but this is nuts. Do you realize how, you know, this is your world, Becky. So it's, it's, it's normal to you, but for me on the outside, right. It's like, think about this. And I'm very sympathetic to this idea that know that some treatments aren't very very helpful, and and they're just done just because people feel they have to do everything, and that sometimes that hurts the quality of life. And but the idea that someone that I want to surgery that I want surgery, but the doctor doesn't want to do it because it might be bad for his stats. You know, it's it's like the guy to, to pick a really unfortunate, um, weird but very accurate analogy at the end of the half in basketball. or, or um, There's a, you know, a guy has the ball 60 feet from the basket. It used to be with one second left, you'd throw up a shot. It's a really low probability, but you might make it. And it's a three pointer. But now people don't even take them because they don't want it in their denominator of their shots attempted because they're probably not going to make it. So that's what you're telling me. It's, and of course it's crazy already because the patient might want the surgery because partly because they're not, or the family might, because they're not paying for it. It's being paid for by the government or by insurance or whatever, but this is crazy. Do you think so? Do you see that?
1: I do find it interesting that that you're becoming out that the thing that you're becoming outraged about is the withholding of medical care. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's just sort of an interesting aside.
0: What in 2014? Um, because we quote spend too much. You know, I'm 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 open minded to the possibility we spend too much. I think we do spend too much by the definition of if we had to pay for our own medical care and rely on charity there'd be less medical care. Most of it, a lot of it was not, I don't think money will spend because we're spending other people's money, but I certainly don't think it's inherently bad to, to do. Uh, I like medical care. I'm a big fan.
1: Well, I, I will say that, um, you know, it could be a bad analogy because there's many things that don't count. So like the patient coming in with a, a trauma who's almost dead, you know, and the only way to save him is, uh, um, to do, you know, emergency surgery, um, or the patient who has a ruptured AAA, um, you know, ab- abdominal aneurysm, like our patient, whose mortality is fifty, sixty percent. I mean, many surgeons take patients who have very, very high mortalities, um, and so it, you know, it's probably not a good thing to spend a lot of time on because I don't know as much about it, so it might not no, be a good thing. No, I take
0: the, I take the point. I'm just, and I certainly, yeah. uh, you know, my my poor grandfather. Uh, Died after open heart surgery um, when he was in his 80s, and I just, and I saw him when I went to see him when he was in the hospital. Just so, he was just so frail and so you know so so sad looking. And I'm thinking, who thought it was a good idea to open this poor little man's chest? Now, of course, if he'd survived, I'd have thought the opposite. So maybe it's just the probabilities and it's hard to assess them. But um, the idea though that someone would 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 not want to work on me because he thinks I'm a long shot is a little bit scary. That's all. That's all I meant.
1: But why is it more scary than people going, you know, to the intensive care unit being putting on life support machines when they're uh, 98% dead or, or intensive care units being referred to as uh, you know, one pulmonologist I worked with said, she feels like she's working in a warehouse for the dying
0: Um. No, that a, doesn't to upset people as much. Well, no, I don't know. I'm not sure. I, that might upset me plenty if I knew more about it. So, it, it's one of my questions for you. So, talk about uh, a question you, had, a topic you had sent me in advance, which is how deaths changed in the United States and the massive growth of ICUs. I don't even know about that. So, tell me about it.
1: So, um, so intensive care units are, you know, where it started in the 1960s. Um, Before that, they didn't really exist. And and life support, kind of as we know, it didn't really exist. So if you were, say, a very old patient with advanced Alzheimer's dementia, um, typically those patients will all eventually die of either pneumonia or a urinary tract infection. That's the mode of death. So, you know, an 85-year-old comes in with pneumonia. She's breathing very fast. Um, You know, she would die um, unless antibiotics started working and her lungs got better. Um, so, you know, people who trained in the 60s and 70s and even into the 80s, you would see a lot of patients die. Um, but starting in the, you know, late 80s, say 90s, and then when I was in med school, um, you know, you... Death becomes a choice. You know, someone can come in very elderly and very sick, um, and unless they have what we call a do-not-resuscitate order, you um, they will be put on life support because, you know, so you, um, you know, say you're an ER doctor, you know, you have a really busy ER. You can't spend a lot of time on this sick patient that comes in from the nursing home who's breathing 40 times a minute, you know, less than 20 is normal, figuring out, you know, do they have a, you know, either they do have a do not resuscitate or they don't. And if they don't, you know, even though they're 95, you know, I have a, high-level trauma coming in in six minutes, and you're going to get intubated and sent to the ICU. So the ICU growth has been just phenomenal. And we have um, more ICU beds per 100,000 than any country except Germany, I think has a little bit more, but um, most European countries have much, much less. So like the hospital that I work at, or did work at, the University of California Hospital, um, had 250 beds and about over 60 ICU beds. Um, in med school, I worked, I did a rotation in England and, in one of their ICUs. And in England and in most European countries, the decision to put someone in ICU still resides mainly with the physician. Uh, so the physicians, if someone comes in and they're, you know, elderly, have a chronic illness over 80, um, you know, those patients don't get put on life support. Uh, they don't go to the ICU
0: like they do here.
1: Um, and, but here they go unless they have a do not resuscitate order. So,
0: but it seems and to me, the key question is what percentage of the people that, right, it's a chilling, uh, just it's, it's disturbing. The question is how many of them get off it and get back to life of those put into the ICU? That would seem to be the relevant question. The fact that we have lots of beds, that could be a good thing, but doesn't it doesn't depend mm-hmm. on how many make it. How many do, do we know?
1: Well, in general, the the immediate mortality rate is ten to twenty percent, which doesn't seem like much, but that's that's really high, um, uh, and it, it's hard because. So, one of the things that you probably would find interesting is that one of the things that's very regulated in the American healthcare system is is hospital length of stay and ICU length of stay because Medicare will pay a hospital. Um, not according to how long the patient stays, but according to the diagnosis that they come in for or the main diagnosis of the stay. So there's a big push, and that's one place where palliative care can be helpful to a hospital's bottom line, is there's a push to keep patients on a short length of stay. So a patient comes into the... All right, so here's an example. Um, Patient with advanced emphysema um, and Alzheimer's dementia on dialysis, 85 comes in to the hospital with pneumonia, gets put on life support and um, cannot wean off the ventilator, meaning that we just can't get them off the ventilator, the lungs are too weak, and the family, um, you know, after multiple conversations, still wants the patient to be on life support. Well, the hospital does not want that patient to remain in the ICU. So what they want is to either uh, withdraw of life support and allow natural death or what they call trach, peg, and transfer which means you put a tracheostomy in the neck, hook them up to the ventilator that way. And, oh, and by the way, they can't talk when that's in. Put a feeding tube in the stomach and transfer them to something called an LTAC or a long-term acute care facility, which the definition of that is a hospital um, with the average length of stay of more than 25 days. And that's where a lot of these patients that can't be weaned go. The mortality in those LTACs for a trach pegged patient is... Somewhere between 50 and 60 percent. So, over half of patients will die in a year. Um, and what's interesting is that 10 years ago, there were about a hundred, a little over a hundred of these facilities in the United States.
0: There's now over 400. And um, it must be know, a non trivial portion of our health care costs, too, right? It's massive. So, right. so, on the surface, you know, on the surface, that's I, mean, I don't know what to make of that, to be honest, um, except that you know, it always reminds me of F.A. Hayek. The curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. And once you have this totally messed up, weird compensation, pricing, diagnostic medical care system that's not anything re- remotely related to a market exchange – some perverse and strange things are going to happen that you have to always wonder about. But on the surface, without knowing any of that, just looking at the fact that we spend an enormous amount of money with only a thirty, a forty to fifty percent chance of survival, could be a wonderful, inspiring story or a very depressing story. I don't know what to make of it without more information. So I guess the question would be, you know, you say it's fifty to sixty percent mortality in the LTAC. So the 40 to 50 who, who get out of there, are they back in three days and they're, they they die anyway? Or is, do they get to go home and play tennis or what happens to them?
1: Right. So that's a big question. And, um, you know, there are some portion of them that will go back to living independently. Um, meaning, you know, maybe a quarter of them will be able to live at home, but a huge percentage of them, you know, maybe half, of those who survive, will spend the rest of their lives in a in a nursing home, um, and so I think you know there's definitely a, a place for this. You know, there are patients who just really need a prolonged wean um, and can't get off the vent in two weeks, um, and it's realistic. But I think what we're seeing over and over again are these very old patients um, with multiple comorbidities. I mean, people on dialysis, people with dementia. I mean, dementia itself is, I mean very, uh, you know, there's a lot of people with very advanced dementia from nursing homes who are getting things like dialysis and multiple hospitalizations, Um, you know, and so to see a patient, I mean, another thing that um, I haven't talked a lot about, but one other sort of thing that I'm doing is helping uh, a um, Medicare HMO, so this is a Medicare insurance company, um, and they get paid... um, per member per month rate and, uh, to cover all the costs. And they're, they're interested in trying to, uh, improve care at the end of the life, but they're also interested in improving their, you know, cost issues. And so they've started a program where nurse case managers, um, develop a phone relationship with patients who are terminally ill and help them understand what their options are and help them talk about hospice and, and other options. You know, and it can be seen by detractors as, uh, you know, oh, you're just kind of shipping everyone off to hospice because you just want to save money. Um, But they are kind of filling a void. Um, And what I've been doing is help train them and uh, train the nurses in how to have these conversations. And then every week we get together and the nurses tell me, like, different cases that they've had that have been challenging. And so, I mean, I think to kind of, you know, shine an example, I mean, this was just last Wednesday's patient. So a 76-year-old male who has... um, um, Alzheimer's dementia, and he has renal failure. He's not on dialysis yet, but he's getting close, uh, emphysema. And, um, he has had eight hospitalizations since January and five nursing home stays after the five of the hospital of uh, five of the eight hospitalizations. And he's just, continually, continually getting weak. And his last hospitalization resulted in him being put on a ventilator in an ICU for three days. So the nurse, um, you know, the family's kind of dysfunctional. The sons don't talk to the patient's wife. The wife's estranged from the patient. And um, in each of these hospitalizations, no one ever has talked, tried to get the family all together and talk about the fact that this man is slowly dying. And do we want to keep just rehospitalizing him, sending him to nursing homes, all that kind of thing, or do we want to really try to kind of let them know what the prognosis is? And and no one had done that, right? The hospitalist hadn't done it. The primary care hadn't done it. So the nurse was telling me about all the different conversations she had, and she finally was able to get through to the hospitalist to say, you know, will you please just let hospice come in and evaluate the patient and talk to the family? And she did. And the patient got discharged on hospice and now he's on hospice. He's still alive and he's doing well. Um, But... You know, eight hospitalizations in in nine months, <laughs> kind of, and it's kind yeah, of crazy. No, the whole
0: just you know, it strikes me as again, as a non-specialist, an outsider. Um, uh, and by the way, I have to make my joke, which is people say, "Well, you're a doctor," and I say, "Yeah, but not the kind that helps people," uh, because I do have a PhD, but it's um, uh, it's in economics, alas. Um, as an outsider, it, it's just such. It's such a strange system we have we have, cl- you know, created slashed, uh, helped create with a situation where, yeah, from the outside, it seems reasonable to for a lot of people to say uh, it's time for you to give up. But on the other hand, and these are patients I assume who don't want to who, who, who don't want to give up. Um, on the other hand, it's it's just strange that anybody would make that decision. It, there's no obvious answer. As to who well, should make that decision, a panel of experts, a panel of insurance experts, a panel of doctors, a panel of clergy, a panel of ethicists. It's just uh, family members. They're all they're all flawed. So the current system is just uh, – what's disturbing about the current system, of course, is that it, it's, it is – whether it's designed that way or not, its effect is to spend enormous sums of money with perhaps very little return. But um, on the other hand, some of that return maybe is precious. I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's very hard. Like when people will say, Oh, um, you know, I can't believe they're going to give that new chemotherapy, which only prolongs life from six months in kidney cancer to 10 months. Like that's just silly. And I'm like, yeah, but if it was your last 10 months of your life, that's like a 40% improvement.
0: Yeah. Two thirds. I mean, so, yeah.
1: yeah. so I'm not saying that they, these are not the things that, Oh, we should stop doing these things. I mean, yes, they're very costly. And, you know, but I'm just talking about kind of the low hanging fruit, which is you know patients who are clearly dying who are suffering a lot. But I do think that one of the the big things reasons that it happens is that doctors have not been trained and are not reimbursed adequately to have conversations about the end of life. They're not educated about prognosis. I mean, if you ask um, you know a lot of doctors, well, what's the number one thing that tells you how long a patient with cancer is going to live well the number one thing is how functional they are like do they get out of the house can they get dressed by themselves and how that's changed over time most people don't know that so doctors have uh, don't have as much education as they could about predicting or about prognosticating and they're not a stress on um on psychology of, of conversations and, and even something as simple as, you know, doctors should never say there's nothing more we can do. Right.
0: It's just uh, yeah, it's, right. It's it's like let me just turn the flip the switch off here. There's I mean just, let's turn out the lights and go home. Yeah. It's a real um Yeah it's the wrong or with wrong DNR. Strategy. I
1: mean we haven't we haven't talked about uh DNR which is you know the nobody's educated uh in a systematic way about how to have a do not resuscitate discussion. You know and uh People will say, "Well, if your heart stops or beating or you stop breathing, do you, what do you want us to do?" And that's like, and that they assume is shared decision making. Yeah. Well, you haven't given a lot of key information there. Like, is it going to work? And yeah. what's going to happen after? You know.
0: Yeah. So yeah, for sure, it's um, it's incredibly, um, incredibly challenging—moral, ethical, personal, physical. I, a lot of what we're talking about, I assume, is technological. The fact that you know, thank God we're better at keeping people alive, but it does come with uh, a set of complications that that doug, uh, as you say, we're not so uh able to deal with we're, we're out of time just let's just close on something a little bit different uh if you if you're able to talk about it. Um, we talked about your job, and we've heard a lot of the ups and downs of it. Um, why did you choose this? If you, if you'd like to share that, why would you go into the uh, specialty?
1: Um, well, I'm not a sort of the typical person who probably would have gone to medical school if my father hadn't been a doctor. I don't think I would have been interested because I was a history major in college. Um, I found science really hard and kind of dull and, um, and I decided to go, uh, to go to medical school and then, uh, enjoyed it when I finally got to talk to patients Um, and I chose internal medicine because you actually got to talk to patients more and I like that. Um, and then, you know, as I said, when I finished residency, well, during residency, when I was working in the oncology unit, I, I was very struck by how much I, I, you know, saw patients really suffering. And, um, I got the nickname of, oh, you're the hospice honey by the social worker. She's like, you always want to put everyone on hospice. And, and, um. So, I mean, I think I, I was kind of attuned to seeing, uh, you know, the suffering and being disturbed by it. I did end up uh, after residency doing a research fellowship and realized that um, I was uh, spectacularly bad at, at research and I was never going to be one of those people that was going to bring in big grants. And, uh, and then I met this uh, economist who later became my husband and introduced me to Econ EconTalk. Um, and uh, I was following him out to California where he got a job. And that was where I first learned about this a specialty called palliative care, which was all about like talking to people. Um, and it seemed like something that was right up my alley. So, uh, so that's kind of how, uh, how I got into it. And, you know, I, I think it's very, um, you know, I, I've kind of been, you know, saying all, oh, you know, doctors don't know how to talk to patients and there's all these problems, but, you know, there's a lot happening now with that, you know, that is changing. And, um, I do think there's a lot of, uh, you know, room to be hopeful that, you know, that Medicare is talking about, you know, paying doctors for having conversations. And, you know, I've actually different groups have been asking me to, you know, hospitalist groups have been asking me to give, um, you know, talks and educating them. They don't want to pay me for it yet, but maybe that will actually happen at some point. Um, but I, I do think there's more awareness of the problem. And, you know, when I first started, I would recurrently be called, oh, you're Dr. Death or your Dr. Kevorkian, and I found that, like, deeply offensive, and
0: really, you know, because I <laughs>
1: uh, yeah. don't support physician-assisted suicide, so, um, but, you know, things are, things are getting better. I think, you know, we can't, we have, it's going to take a while, and it's probably never, there's probably always going to be problems, but um,
0: there's room to be hopeful. Things are changing. My guest today has been Becky litticote Yumeric. Becky, thanks for being part of EconTalk.